I'm Dr. Megan Corredo, and welcome to Real Stories, a podcast that features the narratives of trauma survivors, professionals, and community leaders. Real Stories provides a platform for guests with diverse life experiences to voice and honor their unique narratives. During today's episode, we will be speaking with Dr. Sandra Bloom. Sandy, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here, Megan. So tell us a little bit about who you are. I am by training professionally. I'm a psychiatrist, although I don't practice anymore. And I'm currently still working full time as a associate professor of public health at um, the Dornsife School of Public Health at Drexel. Okay. So I teach a lot um, online, of course, now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm the founder of what's come to be called the Sanctuary Model. And I have a new thing that's coming out that I'll tell you about later. Okay. Tell us a little bit about what you do. What I do is I teach and I teach about trauma studies, anything to do with trauma, adversity, abuse, all those really difficult topics that people need to know about and that most people have experienced in some way. That's mm. what I teach other people about. And um, are you teaching mainly in academia? Are you teaching people in the community? Is it a combination of all of those things? I basically teach anybody that will listen to me. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I teach academically. I teach undergrads and graduate students at um, Drexel. And uh, then I do a lot of other presentations. So this week and next week, I'm going to be talking, just as an example, to Philly's D, uh, the district attorney's office about mm. trauma in girls and women. So, uh, so mm -hmm. because I have considerable expertise in this area, and it's become an area of real interest to a lot of other people, thankfully, I mm -hmm. don't, I don't get any more uh, many opportunities to really talk to regular people out in the community. Okay. I used I used to years ago when I was first getting started, but not so much anymore. Um, I it, unless they're working in some uh, pathway where I am doing that, like in the DA's office. I don't know okay. who's going to be there, but you know there will be a lot of different people there. I think because it's available online. Okay. So in general, um, right now, you're kind of providing support and training and resources to the providers who are working directly with the community. Exactly. Okay. And you're a pioneer in the trauma field. Um, you've been doing this for, the, for a really long time, haven't you? A really, really long time. <laughs> well, um, I've, I've had my, I've had my fair three score in 10, you know, so I'm Kind of looking back uh, at everything I've done, and I've been, yeah, doing trauma-informed work since the 1980s. We, wow. uh, yeah, we, we, um, I got together with some friends, and we started a inpatient psychiatric unit. And about five years into that process, it was in a general hospital out mm -hmm. in the in in the Quaker town about okay. an hour north of here. And we discovered that most of the people we were working with who had a wide variety of mental health problems actually had been exposed to a lot of adversity in childhood. And it meant we had to change the way we did things radically. So by 1987, we were calling ourselves a sanctuary, a safe place for people to come to experience something about healing and recovery that we were just, we were just inventing because <laughs> we mm. didn't know much about it. We had to, we had to learn all about that from our patients because there was, mm -hmm. at the time, there was very little research available. Um, and mm. very little, very few people who were really practicing what has now become called a trauma-informed 
approaches. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was really, it was wonderful. It was exciting. It was wonderful to see people who we didn't know how to help then figure out what to do to really be helpful to them. And that, mm-hmm. that was, that was wonderful. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's what people experience now. And that's why I've become such a passionate teacher about this because for all the caregivers, for all the helpers, really understanding this issue of trauma and adversity. Sorry, somebody's coming in my house. So my dog. It's all right. She has has to check them out. It's my people coming, thankfully, to clean my house. (laughs) When you live in when you live in your house seven, you know, twenty four seven. It really, it's it's hard to manage it. It's like things keep moving around. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and you know you're the only one that moved uh, it around. I know I'm the only one. There's nobody else here. <laughs> My dog didn't do it. So um, <laughs> it's really, really hard. Um, um, so I'm curious, what, what led you all to um, use the name Sanctuary and this initial model that you developed? Well, I got to think back on that. Um, I think we were, we, we knew that we were doing something that virtually nobody else was doing it mm-hmm. and that our emphasis was on what it takes to create a really safe place for people who feel scared and in danger all the time. Mm-hmm. So... I'm not sure how it was just thinking of words for that. What could, what could a place be? Mm-hmm. And so in the definition of sanctuary, I, I didn't mean it so much religiously as, you know, like that, but in the same way that religions use sanctuary, it means a safe place where something sacred happens. Mm-hmm. And we, knew we were really trying to figure out what it took to create a safe space for people to be in. Mm -hmm. And there was something really, yeah, the best word, it wasn't within a religious context, but the best word I can think of is sacred, that it was, Mm -hmm. it felt that we had their, their um, sacred trust that we wouldn't hurt them. And therefore we were really responsible to, mm. We had to figure out what that meant. What did it mean not to hurt them when we were dealing with people who were often uh, extremely sensitive to any form of betrayal or mistrust? It just seemed like um, it was the, it was the right way thing to call it because and also to make a real transition from standard inpatient psychiatric care to something different because we wanted Mm. to, by the time we came to calling it that, we knew we wanted to specialize in that. So we Mm. wanted to attract people who at some level already knew that their earlier experiences had something to do with their current mental health dilemmas. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to have it be like a marker. Okay. Mm. Here, come here. If you think you've got these problems, come here and we'll try to do what we can to help. Mm-hmm. Um, so today there's so much uh, work surrounding trauma-informed care and trauma-informed care has become this buzzword. But it sounds like your your work really was a departure from what was before. I'm curious to uh, to kind of know what was it like before? Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't that huge a transition for us because we had um, we had been able we had this unique opportunity to create our own psychiatric unit from scratch. There wasn't one in this hospital before that, so we could design it then to be what we thought at the time before we understood about trauma still to design it to be what we thought was good care. Mm. So that meant that uh, we didn't have to lock people up. It was all open voluntary unit. We didn't want to have locked doors. We didn't want it to be like um, what state hospitals were like at the time. 
Mm. Um, we wanted people to have a sense that the open door was part of, of keeping safe, keeping everybody in the community safe was the responsibility of everybody, not just mm. the staff. And the way I had learned to do that, because that's the way I learned in my training, that mm. I worked um, at, at Temple. I went to school and did my training at Temple Hospital. And at the time, the inpatient unit was open and voluntary, as were most psychiatric units around the country, everywhere, mm. so that people... Um, could admit themselves and then could leave and they could walk off if they needed to. Um, That's a big difference from how things are today. Exactly. It's a huge difference and not because the patients have changed. <laughs> it's much more about how our systems have changed. So it, we could create an open unit. We didn't have to have locked doors. We could have it be physically attractive for people so that it... Um, it was pretty. There were colors. Mm. There were pictures on the wall, um, and that was for the for the patients and for us to be mm. in space that was attractive and that um, kind of visually portrayed healing rather mm -hmm. than restriction. And then we could, because um, we could design it, we could incorporate. We we wanted it to be short term. We didn't want people to be in a hospital for a long time. And in the early days, that meant anywhere from a week to three weeks. We okay. pretty much didn't keep anybody longer than three weeks. Um, and it was almost like a ritual passage. So there'd be a week for people to come in and get adapted to the system, a mm -hmm. week to work intensively, and then a week to prepare to go back to their lives. So it's almost more like a retreat, a three-week retreat. And mm. in that time, because we had that kind of time, unlike today, uh, we could really assess what was going on in people's lives. So so there would be a psychiatric evaluation. There'd be a full psychological evaluation with, with full psychological testing, including mm. Rorschachs and TATs and MMPIs. We could then that there'd be a social work assessment, there'd be a family assessment, there'd be a nursing assessment, and then we'd integrate that all together. What because mm -hmm. we'd meet regularly at least twice a week as a whole team to really figure out well, what are we doing with this person? What do they need? What haven't we done yet? And and I know this is very meaningful to you, we could at the time have a lot of expressive therapies. And we That's did. That's amazing. We had art therapy. We had three days, every day. We had a full-time art therapist. Wow. We had a, a full-time psychodramatist. We had a full-time movement therapist. So they would do groups every day. Mm. And with that level of, so the person would see a psychiatrist, usually me in the beginning, every mm -hmm. day for a therapy session, not where we used medications, but medications in those days were more as a help for therapy, not a substitute for it. So mm -hmm. everybody would have a, a psychiatric eval and then have um, a session with me every day. Everybody would see another clinician every day, usually a social worker who was, who was we, and we would often work together. Mm -hmm. And then they'd definitely have a family assessment. And then they'd be in groups the whole rest of the day in expressive therapies groups mm -hmm. and psychoeducational groups. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of more like going to school mm -hmm. for a couple of weeks than it was um, just sitting there and twiddling your thumbs. Mm -hmm. And so we that that was already the way we thought psychiatric inpatient psychiatric care should be. And then we learned about trauma and we learned about all of the things that we had learned that were wrong. <laughs> now, did you learn that from books or did you learn that from the clients or patients you were treating? The patients, because mm. there really weren't any books yet. Mm. Um, so 
so we had to we had to learn that we had to learn that from them um and so we started questioning everything it it was like it was like tossing everything you knew up in the air and then when some things came down they were still true mm-hmm. and other things came down and they were absolute bullshit <laughs> <laughs> and so that was that, that was very challenging because by the time we got there. I I had started out my career when I was a teenager in college, still as a mental health tech. So by the time we started understanding about trauma, I and my colleagues had been working with psychiatric patients for a long time. Mm. We thought we pretty much knew all of the really big stuff, and what we discovered was that oh my god, we didn't know squat. Mm. So we had to become beginners again. And going into beginner mind is a different space than expert mind. Mm-hmm. And we had to we had to listen carefully and we had to collaborate with our patients instead of having a, a you know power-based authoritarian hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't work. We had to really find out what was going on with mm-hmm. them. And where could we push them and where should we not? And what could we expect from them? And what were their goals for treatment? You know, all kinds of collaborative efforts that we just, we just didn't know how, how to really consistently do Mm. before that. We did it sometimes with some people, but we didn't, we didn't realize that the practice really needed to be different. It sounds like a really humbling experience for you all as clinicians too. (laughs) It was, <laughs> it was, and it was, uh, bec- I think what made it possible was that we had each other. So we were all learning as professionals from different um, backgrounds at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't feel quite so uh, humiliating. It was more like exciting. Mm-hmm. And you were all um, in that together. I, we were all in it together. And we were seeing these amazing things. So, you know, when you treat people with a different kind of respect, when you treat people um, who are designated as, as psychiatric patients. So psychiatric patients often come into the system already feeling like they're stupid and sick and crazy and, uh, you know, they just don't know anything. And so when you bring people into a setting like this and you say, okay, you're, you're the expert about your life. Tell me about mm-hmm. it. Tell me what's happened to you. And you stop focusing on what's wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Then everything changes. It's, it was amazing to watch the transformation from just that simple positional place that my pal Joe Fodorero put into words. I remember it in a team meeting we had when we were trying to figure out years later how we had changed in retrospect. He said, well, we've stopped asking, we've stopped caring really, mm-hmm. uh, finding out from people what's wrong with them. And we've, we really have spent a lot more time finding out what's happened to them. And that's changed everything. Mm-hmm. And we all went, yeah, Joe, that's right. That's it. That captures mm-hmm. it. And it's become a national slogan. And Joe usually doesn't get any credit. I know. I've noticed that. Whenever yeah. I hear it, I always emphasize, you know, Joe Fodorero is the first person that said <laughs> that, right? He'll love that. <laughs> he will totally love that. I can't tell you how many times I've heard about how he doesn't get any right. Credit. There's been all different different theories that have been credited with that, and I'm like, this is inaccurate. It was Joe. <laughs> yes, it was Joe. And I and I wrote it down in 1994 okay. as the first published place. It was because I wrote. I started writing because I had something to say Mm. and I knew it was really important what we were discovering. So I wrote the first paper about it in 1994 and writing's really important because it's like this, it's, you know, back then it was just writing. Mm -hmm. Now we've got the internet, but um, it's, it's always like sending a message out in a bottle 
and you never know who's going to, in the sea of information, who's going to mm-hmm. pick it up. Mm-hmm. And so writing became really important. So did you imagine, like, thinking back on that first paper in 1994, that things will kind of expand and grow in the way that they have now? Absolutely not. I, you know, I had no, I, <clears throat> I had no idea about, about uh, paradigm shifts, you know, about how things, things can really change and that you can be a, an agent of change. I just had this inside feeling that I had to write this down, that I had a responsibility, that I was learning things, that it was shocking because we were out in the middle of really what I, because I grew up in Philly, I perceived being out there in the suburbs kind of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I grew up in the suburbs, but closer in this part of the city. And um, I, I just... I just felt, wow, this is, I don't know what we're doing out here. We're just this little tiny inpatient program, but we're discovering things that nobody's talking mm. about. So I'm going to have to put it, I have a responsibility. Since this knowledge has been given to me, I have a responsibility to do something mm-hmm. with it. And I didn't, I had no idea what was, I hoped it would happen. I knew it was revolutionary. And by that time, I was clear enough because I was pretty active in college as a social, you know, activist Mm -hmm. that um, things had to change in a major way. And I started to see that uh, if we could do this, if this could happen with the most severely injured people in our culture, then it could happen to everybody Mm. and everybody could help to heal themselves and help to heal our very dysfunctional culture. Mm -hmm. And so it started because for me as a feminist, I see the the personal as political Mm -hmm. and vice versa. Um, It started to have political meaning for me as well. Mm So let's uh, switch gears for a little bit. So we know that every individual, every community, every system has a story and every story includes both adversity and strength. Can you talk to us about some of the adversities that you faced? Yeah, uh, I looking back because, you know, when you're when you're in your 70s, that's pretty much what you do is look Mm. back. (laughs) I, I, um, I have been extremely fortunate. Um, I, uh, my, both my parents came from broken homes and so they were pretty determined to not have a broken home Mm -hmm. and they were together for 65 years. Um, my mom grew up, I think with a lot of poverty, her family, her father had abandoned her, her mother and her. And my dad, uh, they were both from a working class, edging into lower middle class backgrounds. Mm-hmm. My mother was a was from a long standing Philadelphia Quaker family. Okay, in Frankfurt, and my father grew up all over Philly, and was his mother had left the family, and so he was really raised by his uh, father and his grandmother, and. My mom ended up being a glass half empty person, and my dad was a glass half full mm. person. My mom lived to be 90, my dad lived to be 102. Wow. And for the last 10 years of his life, he lived with me. And he was, he was amazing because he would, he, he would look back on his life and go, you know, even when bad things happen, I can see now how they all turned out for the good. He was that kind okay. of person. Um, very gregarious, and he worked for the Philadelphia School District for 40 years, his whole life before he retired, as a photographer. So he went around all over the city making movies and doing projects for teachers in the Philadelphia school system. So, And my mom worked as a bookkeeper in a tag manufacturing company in Kensington. Mm. And then they moved 
when I was only three, they, because both of them were working, I think, they had enough money to buy a little house out in the suburbs, which were just in the 1950s, were just beginning to develop after the mm. war. And uh, it was an amazing place to grow up, I, I understand mm -hmm. now, because it was a small town, basically, and a volunteer fire company, volunteer library, volunteer everything. I went with the same kids from nursery school all the way through high school, the same schools. And they were really, I got a really good education. And it was, um, you know, a, all people who were in the middle class, nobody, nobody had a lot of money and nobody was poor. It was, and then what I know now is that it was a remarkably safe childhood. Mm -hmm. I just had no exposure at all to violence or insecurity or, as we define it, childhood mm. adversity. I was protected. The only adversity I encountered was that I had five surgeries before I was oh, 10. Wow. And that, that's probably what aimed me towards medicine because I loved my doctors and my parents buffered me. And I think I learned how to, I think that was the beginning probably of learning how to manage other people's anxiety because my mom was a really anxious person. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, but it was not traumatic for me. Uh, it was, I was really protected uh, and they were able to stay with me in the hospital. And it was three surgeries on my eyes and then tonsils and then uh, acute appendicitis. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, that's the only thing that I can say in childhood was adversity. So that's what I mean by being incredibly mm -hmm. lucky. Then I got into adolescence and that's a different story because my, my, I had started having serious problems with my parents. It was like they were, they were the best parents possible for a child. And I was an only child. But when I started to really, um, carve out my own independence. Uh, they had really problems. I think, I think my mom was terrified that I would end up pregnant. And so she, when I, you know, love, you know, it's what happens in adolescence. It's normal. And the first time I fell in love, I, she, she became like a different mm. person. I mean, it was really like being with a different person. She was really pretty abusive and emotionally, not physically. And um, I think that laid the groundwork for me to understand dissociation later wow. in life. That must have been really intense. Uh, it was so intense. Oh, it was like being, um, it was like two years of doing Romeo and Juliet. Mm. You know, it was awful. It was just awful. And was my first experience with betrayal of trust. That's what it, it, it felt like for me. And I got really, I got really derailed as a result. Psychologically, I think it took me a long time and a considerable amount of psychotherapy to, to heal from all that. And that, and that taught me about the importance of adolescence, which we often we often forget, you know, that, that the whole brain reorganizes in adolescence and you can really derail somebody who's had a healthy, good childhood if you don't continue to help them developmentally through adolescence. Mm -hmm. So uh, what helped me, I was lucky. So you, there are turning points in life. And I think for me, a turning point was that rather than sit with all this anger that I felt and, you know, get in trouble with boys and, you know, hang out with problem people as a kid. And, and we didn't have that accessibility of drugs yet, but there certainly was alcohol. Mm -hmm. Instead of that, I decided to volunteer and at a hospital, because I knew I wanted to go into medicine. 
by the time I was 10. Wow, such an early age. (laughs) Yeah, it's because I think all that exposure in hospitals. And um, so I started volunteering at Temple Hospital because my I could get there. My um, my mom and dad both had to drive into the city every day, and my mother was heading over to Kensington, and so I could I could get a ride, and I became what was then called a candy striper, which is just a kid volunteer. I was probably my first volunteer job was at Moss Rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. That's where I first met my first psychologist, and after that, it was always Temple. So. That's really where I learned about mm. racism. Before that, living in the all-white suburbs um, with people who are all of the same socioeconomic class as me, um, the most diversity at that time in my town was there was one Jewish family, and I and I uh, the the son of that family I went to his bar mitzvah. But uh, other than that, everybody pretty much was white. And initially Protestant, and then some Catholics started moving in. Mm. So, so there was, other than that, no diversity. So working at Temple, I started to meet um, mostly African-American people. It, the late, it, wasn't, it was later that I encountered the Latino community. But the, pretty much everybody living in the North Philadelphia neighborhood at the time were Black. And... Uh, the civil rights movement had been in play and still was, but the extraordinary poverty that people lived in was pretty obvious. You just had to look around the neighborhood. Um, and uh, the, the the exposure to drugs and the, the level of violence was, I was seeing it in the ER. I would help the doctors. I remember holding somebody's, head while the resident was sewing his scalp back on because he had been Mm. knifed. Um, It was the first place I saw a a dead person. Um, It was, I mean, I was very involved. I I wasn't afraid. I look back at that, at that child that I was and I go, who was Mm. that person? Because now I'd be like totally freaked out, Mm. I think. (laughs) But I just, I just, I was learning so much and so much about people. And I, there was a lot of care. There was, there was kindness. I didn't, I didn't see horrible stuff. I didn't see people mistreating each other once they came into hospital, into the ER. So, but I saw the conditions people were Mm -hmm. living in and what they were dealing with. And that was a revelation for a kid that grew up, white kid that grew up in the, in Mm. the suburbs at, at 16. Mm. And then I, after two years of that, I had to start getting jobs that would earn money Mm -hmm. for college. And so I worked in the mail room at, at the hospital. Then I worked typing up EKG reports. I remember a story from, from typing up EKG reports was at the, the desk where I sat was, it was that the cardiology department and the desk was right in front of the elevator. And one day, um, the elevator opened and this man, he was, he was African-American and he leaned down to get underneath the the uh, entrance of the Mm -hmm. elevator and then stood up and he was a giant Mm -hmm. man. And it turned out it was Wilt Chamberlain (laughs) and the, the, the head of cardiology was Uh his doc. (laughs) And it was just like, wow, look at that human. He's gigantic. Um, And then I worked as, then I, uh, by that time I knew I wanted to do psychiatry and um, I, made friends with some psychiatrists and I got a job as a mental health tech on the psychiatric Mm -hmm. unit. And so all through uh, college, I was spending every summer and every holiday at Temple Hospital. It became my second Mm -hmm. home. The people there that I worked with became my second family to get me through the rough 
period I was going through with my mm. own parents. And my parents were basically my only mm. family. And so, because they, they both came from, you know, very small and mm-hmm. broken homes. So, so, so it was the way it could have gone a completely other direction. I could have been the kid that didn't have the good fortune to be able to do that and ended up on a very mm-hmm. different track. But because I was able to go in that direction, I met all kinds of people who were supportive to me, who heard that I wanted to go to medical school and there weren't very many women yet mm-hmm. in medicine. And they encouraged me and they'd take me to lunch and talk to me about medical school and how you get in. And they advised me, don't do, don't be a biology or chemistry major in college because college will be the last time you can get a wider education. And so I was a psychology major and a sociology minor. And I did a lot of literature and all the things that they advised Mm. me. So that was... You know, that was an incredibly important part of my story and what I learned. And then I did my, I went to medical school at Temple and then I did, I didn't apply anywhere else. I Mm. didn't want to go anywhere else. That was home. And then I continued and did my residency in psychiatry at Temple because um, one of the, the person that then directed the inpatient psychiatric unit had become mm. my mentor. I, uh, he was my mentor when I was a mental health tech. And I learned about psychiatry first from him and from the people I worked with as a mental health tech who were all from mm. the community. They were all people who worked, that was their job, was to serve as a mental health tech on Temple's inpatient. And they lived nearby. So um, that was also how I became more aware of the these radical differences in mm. our culture. And uh, did my residency. And then pretty much all of my patients were either temple students or they were from the community, from the African-American community around North Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So... By the time I was finished my residency, I saw how possible it was. I learned a lot about power. Uh, I learned a lot about hierarchy. I learned a lot about how organizations function and dysfunction. My, I called him the chief. He was my mentor. His name was Roy Stern. And he had to constantly fight to keep his psychiatric unit to have open Mm -hmm. doors with the administration. They always wanted to lock people up. And, and so I learned how hard it is to, to keep Mm -hmm. freedom going, uh, to, to really keep um, that sense of dignity going when it comes to psychiatric Mm -hmm. patients. So, and then by the time I was finished all that, I had been there, you know, how, what's it, for seven, um, like 12 years, more than a decade. I just went, I, the problems that exist here for the patients I'm treating have everything to do with poverty and racism. And I'm going to drown in this. There's no way I can. I can going to be able to do anything about these mm-hmm. problems. They're too big, too political. I got to get to some place where I can see that I'm making a difference. And that's how I ended up out in all white communities out in uh, northern, you know, mm-hmm. Bucks County was I could get a job as a baby psychiatrist and I could learn how to treat people with people I uh, was more like and that I could understand in a different way and that did not have to go up against the kind of adversity that I had been dealing with um, with for so mm-hmm. many years. And that's actually where I learned about trauma. Mm. 
was was out so you there. had already been yeah. working in the middle of trauma like you started off in in exactly. the temples in temple uh their er and then you didn't actually have a word to describe what you were seeing nope wow. nope there was there was no language there weren't textbooks there there it wasn't identified yet as what trauma does and remember this is this goes back to the 1970s i got out of my residency in 1978 and the diagnosis that we gave to vietnam veterans of ptsd didn't even enter terminology until 1980 mm. so there was no there was nothing yet uh there was some stuff that we know now from World War II and World War I, but there was nothing in what I had been taught or literature I had access to that referenced what now we call PTSD or complex PTSD. So, no, the etiology of mental disorders was not mm. clear. What caused it? What made somebody be born and then end up as an adult seriously depressed, suicidal, using mm -hmm. drugs, um, psychotic. It, it, these all were considered kind of independent diagnoses. And we don't know where they come from, but this is what we call them based on the labeling mm -hmm. system of the mm -hmm. DSM. So can you share, you've already kind of woven in some of the adversities that you faced along with some of the positive moments. Any additional positive moments in your story or turning points that you want to highlight? Yeah, one one person, um, and she doesn't, she doesn't come to me until 1980. She was, um, so 1980, was when we started our psychiatric unit. And in 1980, as and I also had an at-large outpatient practice. So uh, a nurse I had worked with, a psychiatric nurse I had worked with at Temple, sent me her daughter, who was 18, who had accused a man on a college campus of having mm -hmm. raped her. And when the police investigated, it, it hadn't happened. And so we were admitted her to our psychiatric unit in order to do an assessment of what's going on. <laughs> what, what This is a, a healthy, um, uh, engaging, bright, young 18-year-old woman who suddenly accuses a man falsely of rape. What in the world is that about? So we admitted her. And I started treating her uh, like I would anybody and started seeing her as an outpatient. And she was a delight to work with. Um, you know, she was like your ideal psychotherapy mm -hmm. case, I thought at the time. And uh, I saw her for several years every week while she finished college and uh joe and i worked with her mom and her sister it was freely admitted at the time by the mom and and the sister that their father who had died prior to my patient entering treatment of diabetes that he had been a batterer and But when I asked her if anything had happened to her, she denied it and said no. So, and I, I just believed her. And so, and I knew nothing about domestic violence. There was no domestic violence training in, the, in those days. Uh, the, the first shelters weren't even created until the 70s. So, um, I, I really hadn't learned anything. And so I just accepted that, okay, she was... She was okay, so that didn't have anything to do with anything. Every now and then, she'd be out on a date, and she'd call me as an emergency, and she'd have this little girl voice, and um, I'd calm her down, and uh, and then she'd say, okay, I'll see you at our next session, and we next week I'd see her, and I'd 
try to find out what was what had happened, and she would often distract mm. me and change the subject. Well, 1985 comes. Now she's a graduate student in another city, and she, her mother calls me and says she needs to be admitted. She's using drugs. She had never used drugs before. She's suicidal. Can her mom bring her down? And yeah. Mom brought her down. I walk in the room to do the psych eval, and that's the moment that changed mm. my life because she was sitting there, and I, this is somebody I've known now for five years. And well, every week for five and years. Every week. Well, until she went to graduate okay. school. So for a couple of years, every week. And, uh, and here she is, and it's her, but it's mm. not her. I, I was so striking that... I remember going, oh, shit, mm -hmm. inside my head and saying to her, who are you? And she gave her name that was her name. And I said, and how old are you? Because what was remarkable was about the way she was moving. She was not moving like her mm -hmm. adult self. She was moving like a little, I don't have any words to describe it. And she said that, that when I asked how old she was, she said, I'm seven. And I went, oh, holy crap. This cannot be happening. And I knew what it was, but I never thought I would see somebody with a multiple personality, which is now called dissociative identity mm -hmm. disorder. And so I started interacting with this child, what's now we call a child alter, who would go back and forth between being out uh, and then then her adult self would come and talk to me and the adult self had no absolutely no understanding that she had this other part of herself and so i uh, i this was just amazing um and at the time all we had were we had video cameras so we brought in a video camera and i taped her as her child self and taped her as her adult self and began showing them to each other. Meantime, the child alter was telling me what had really happened mm -hmm. to her as a child. So she had been, um, she was first raped by her father on her day of Holy mm -hmm. Communion. And he continued to uh, rape her for years. And she had watched him kill her dog in front wow. of her as a threat. And um, she told all these horrible, horrible stories. And I, I just went, how is this possible that her adult self knows nothing about this? And uh, as I watched them communicate with each other I suggested they could communicate on the inside and they did uh, and before she left the hospital she had integrated as her adult self all of this horror that had happened to mm. her as a kid but it completely changed the direction of my life because it Again, I was a, in beginner. How could I possibly work with this person this long and never hmm. know this? How could I? How could it possibly have happened? And I, because I had access to her mom, I could confirm a lot of the mm -hmm. details of her earlier life, so that my skepticism. And, you know, concern about these being made up memories was erased because her mom wasn't there for any of the horrors, but could confirm enough of the surrounding details to to, to convince mm. me that this was all very and, real. This was and not listening, made up. Um, listening to this just reminds me um, of all the different multiple layers of experience um, that trauma survivors have and also... Um, I don't know. I, I just think about like an onion, something that peels back. You peel back a layer and there's another layer. And I think sometimes people try to oversimplify um, 
trauma treatment or the experiences of trauma survivors, um, when in actuality, you can know somebody for years and years and years, and they can have all these different coping strategies to be able to navigate through what they've been through. Some of some of the coping strategies may be positive, others may be negative, um, but just understanding that the this process takes time and it's also really complex. Exactly. That's exactly, exactly right. And that's what we learned. And that uh, it, it is of concern to me now that, you know, there's all kinds of checklists about what it means to be trauma informed mm-hmm. and um, they're all important things, but it's that that you just described it's the complexity and it and healing and recovery is much more like peeling right. an onion and you keep going down through all these interconnected mm-hmm. layers and you have to and at each layer people may get worse before they get better but that's not right. recidivism uh, you know that's not actually getting worse it's getting to mm-hmm. the sore spots um, and 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 then having to heal from that sore spot right. and another sore and spot. I think no, it's, pers- a, it, it's a completely different model mm-hmm, of recovery. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I, I don't know where this idea comes from. Um, it might be from the medical model. It might be, I don't know, cultural ideas about progression and about growth. But um, for some reason, we think that growth is just this like upward trajectory as opposed to it being, you know, like an ebb and flow and things go up and they go down again. And um, and that's all a part of the process of growth is kind of this this up and down, back and forth. And it doesn't mean we're not moving, but, um, you know, the movement and the growth and the progression might not look how we originally thought it would look. Absolutely. I I think of it, you know, when you if you picture a tree that has been um, uh, partially knocked over as from a storm and now it's still growing, but it's growing in a completely different trajectory than the one it was previously Mm -hmm. on. And and if you want to help that tree get back up and just be able to grow towards the light, you you can't just Mm -hmm. jerk it up. And it's, and it's not going to be just one time. You have to brace it. You have to change the braces each time the, the movement occurs. You have to think about it in a completely different way. And that's what people don't get a chance to do now in our crazy mm-hmm. mental health system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a whole nother story, too. Um, <laughs> yeah. We could have a podcast just on, like... <laughs> How our current mental health system does not promote like trauma-informed growth and recovery. Absolutely. Um, So where do you see yourself in the future? What's your vision moving forward? Yeah, uh, well, I got a lot less future ahead than I do (laughs) past behind. That's a guarantee. Um, I think in the immediate future, um, I've created this um, with the support and help of Lakeside Global Institute and a colleague of mine named Sarah Yanese. I've created this um, organizational approach that's going to be entirely online that's called Presence. And so the, that's going to come out within the next presence, couple Presence, not like so, gifts, but presence as in being there. No, like presence as in being present, right. Uh, and, uh, uh, so the future holds the release of that and finding out does that, uh, can, can we get organizations to take on learning this really difficult stuff, the material we've been talking about. So there's tracks for everybody. And then there's a track for leaders, for clinicians, for direct service, and for indirect service. So trying to have everybody integrate all of this knowledge, but for their own uh, job, but then as a whole organization, how do you put all that together and ask, get people to think about and and reflect on the really difficult questions and the difficult situations Mm -hmm. we're up against as a culture. Uh, can can that happen in a safe way if in an online mm. environment? We'll see. I don't know yet. It has to it has to get out in the world for me to know. So that's definitely part of my future. And then I'm working on 
I'm, I'm working very, very early stages of what I hope will eventually be a book about uh, what in the world is wrong with the human mm. species and how can we heal? Because obviously we're, we're threatening all life on earth, which mm. <laughs> we mm -hmm. shouldn't be doing. <clears throat> so some, something's gone really wrong in the course of human development. And I'm really interested in figuring out what that is. Kind of taking what we, what we learned at an individual level and applying it all the way up to the whole mm. species. Um, because it's everywhere. These problems don't just exist right. in the United States. It's it's the whole world. So it's the whole species. So that that I hope will be. Um, I've begun already because of this uh, retreat space that we're having. <laughs> oh, that that's a positive <laughs> reframe. We're in a retreat. <laughs> exactly. We're in a retreat. Um, uh, I, I'm, I, that's where I hope it's going to go. And meantime, I'm still okay. teaching. So <clears throat> I anticipate, I don't see any reason to stop teaching really. I love it. I love the students. I think the, uh, the, the, the young people that I teach are just amazing and they need mm. this knowledge. So it's a real privilege to, to be mm. able to share it. Any favorite or life-changing resources that you want to share with listeners? Yeah, I would encourage people, uh, if you're professionally trained, then uh, I hope you will read my books, Creating, Destroying, and Restoring Sanctuary. And then any everybody should read um, Johan Hari's Lost mm -hmm. Connections. I think it, it's a wonderful book. I have all my students read it. They love it. It's very readable, um, probably more readable than my books. And uh, it really gives an overall sense of where, how, how we've gone so wrong as, as human beings and some really good examples of how we can fly right. And the other one, I would encourage people to look at a movie by Michael Moore called Where to Invade Next, uh, because we need good ideas. And it turns out what Michael does in this movie is he goes over to and visits all different countries in Europe and in North Africa. And uh, he shows how they have taken good ideas from the U.S. and applied them and are mm. using them. <laughs> and they need to bring them back here. So that's why he's invading. He wants to bring good ideas back here. And I think that's what we don't, we're, we, we've gotten so prideful in the U.S. and often arrogant that we uh we we don't realize that there are other places where people are doing some really right. good things that need to be mm -hmm. brought here um and that we need to be doing and i would encourage people to become better educated as i'm trying to get about how can we change our economic system so it's not so inequitable how are we going to do that and um, Mary Trump's new book about mm. her dad is uh, mm. worth reading. So those are the things that are on the top okay. of my head. And uh, just I would like to point out the fact that you have a gigantic library of all different types of resources, depending on what you want to learn about, too. I've had the pleasure of seeing exactly. it, looking at it in <laughs> awe, and it's amazing. So you're always reading something. Yeah. <laughs> The website, the website where that will, where all those will be available in the next couple of weeks will be called um, Creating Presence. Uh, and I want to say thanks for doing this, Megan, and thanks for everything that you do for uh, CTIP. Um, um, make an ad for CTIP is a volunteer advocacy organization. Uh, ctip.org. It stands for the Campaign for Trauma-Informed Policy and Practice. And it is Megan who created the uh, website and who is our head of communications for obvious reasons. So <laughs> I want to thank you for doing all this work to try to get the word yes. out. Thank you. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you joining us. Thank you for listening to Real Stories. The resources referenced by today's guest speaker will be included in the episode description. 
For more information about me, Dr. Megan Corredo, and my work with the story's trauma narrative intervention, please visit my website, www.storiesguide.com. Also, feel free to follow my story social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Remember that for every story of trauma and adversity, there is always a story of strength and resilience.